You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. Should I turn down the thermostat or overthrow the capitalist mode of production? That's the name of a new paper that I just wrote, and we'll be talking about that paper today, discussing the ecological crisis and its relationship to individual consumer behavior. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we're going to be talking about ecology and capitalism. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to talk about some current events. For the current events section today, we're going to be talking about the attempted coup in Germany, the far-right coup attempt from December 7th of this year. And we're going to have a special guest for the current events section today. We're welcoming back Ralph Keller, who was our guest on episode 23 of Radio Free Humanity. Um, The episode was about the rise of the extreme right in Europe, and there was a special focus on Germany. So we asked asked Ralph to come back today to discuss this recent uh, far-right coup attempt in Germany. So welcome back, Ralph Keller. Thank you for having me. I suppose a lot of our listeners probably have gotten the gist of the basic um, facts of the coup attempt by now from all the reporting on it. But maybe you, Ralph, could just give us a brief synopsis of what happened. 24 German women and men plus one person from Russia were arrested in raids across the country. And one uh, additional arrest was made in Austria. Yeah, Many of those who were arrested uh, are active or former soldiers with special training. And uh, we can talk a little bit more about these, uh, the profile of these people. This was a heavy thing. It was a heavy raid because 3,000 security personnel took, uh, personnel took to- uh, part in this, in this raid. And I raided uh, 130 properties that belong to 52 suspects in 11 German states. So not all 52 suspects were arrested, only 24. But the circle from which the arrest was made was uh, like 52 suspects. Do you think it's right to assume that they might scoop up more people in the future? I think it it might be inevitable that uh, as the investigations progress, more arrests will be made. Because you can't overthrow a government with 25 people. I would just guess that if they gotten far enough that it was a danger... Um, that they had to be arrested, that there must be more more people somehow. If there will be another widespread arrest, then uh, that would show how close they actually came. I hope they didn't come close. We know that they were um, attempting to restore some kind of monarchy in, in Germany and that they were um, associated with various kind of far-right tendencies, including uh, apparently a, a big QAnon influence. Uh, some news media were saying that the biggest following of QAnon outside of the United States is in Germany. Well, you know, what else, what do we know sort of ideolo- ideologically about the orientation of these folks? The reason why that is, is because the Reichsburger scene in Germany is a very diverse, yeah, you might call it hodgepodge. And what's Reichsburger mean, first of all? I mean, I've seen the, the Reichsburger movement characterized as anti-constitutional. 
and uh, opposed to liberal democratic order. So, like, what's the basic gist of their... What unifies the Reichsburger movement is a deep uh, rejection of the Federal Republic of Germany as a state and the uh, constitutional institutions of that state because they the, the movement rejects the current German constitution. That's what they do. And their argument is that either the German Empire before 1914 continues to exist or the German Empire in the borders of 1937 continues to exist. And the reason why they claim this is because the 1919 constitution of the Weimar Republic, the republic that was established just after the, uh, World War I, they argue that this constitution was never abolished. It does sound funny when you, when you read things like this. And I have a few more details later on about what they do is, okay, because that uh, 1919 constitution was never or was never abolished it's it's still in force therefore allegedly the federal republic is not identical with the german reich uh, with the uh, well the the reich before world war 2 was lost so therefore germany today is illegal constitutionally as well as under international law yeah so and therefore i say de facto Today's Germany as a state is non-existent. Only the Reich before the World War II, only that continues to exist. And then they argue the Allied uh, occupation of Germany has never actually ended. Well, officially it is it ended, but we're still in uh, under secret occupation. And well, this is really sounds like uh, conspiracy theory stuff, yeah. It's funny, like this idea that the current constitution is invalid and the Second Reich or whatever was the constitution is still the real, this way of even like legitimizing like illiberal politics is so strange. It has to be rooted in some like historic fiction, it's like kind of spiritual fiction. But it's, you see it in the US too. We, you know, they have like the sovereign citizens movement and the posse commentatus movement and these different far right anti-government groups, but they they can't just be like, we're against the government. We want to replace it with this fascist government. They have to kind of create some like weird historical conspiratorial claim about how their philosophy is actually the real existing one and that the commonly accept the government as some sort of fiction that people have been duped by. And it's a very strange way of legitimizing. Instead of just saying we're fascist, we want to take over the country. So they actually embrace elements of a monarchy. They reject bourgeois democracy as we know it today. They subscribe to historical revisionism, esoteric worldviews, and then one group within that, they subscribe to outright extremism, anti-Semitism, Holocaust denialism. So these are really, I would call them fascists. Yeah. But not all of them are like straight up Nazis. I don't think you can say they all are. But this doesn't make the movement any less dangerous. There's been reporting in past years about the widespread problem of far right extremists in the police system and the military in Germany. You know, how do those problems relate to uh, this coup attempt? Before this crackdown on the, the Reichsburger movement, were there any successful attempts to like purge the far right from the military and police in Germany? And 
now that they're cracking down on the Reichsburger, are there, you know, is there more political incentive to like crack down on the far right and the security and police forces? The system has brushed this, the threat under the carpet for too long, trivialized it. Yeah, it's not a big deal. Also, we have in Germany, and this is my own translation of the name of that organization, it's the Center for Counter-Extremism and Counter-Terrorism. They've had different priorities in the past. So in 28 of their meetings, they were focusing on the climate change activists. And in only a small number of meetings did they look at the far right. And what came to mind here when I read this is a German comedian once coined the phrase like uh, the German justice system wears an eye patch on the right eye and in the left eye it wears a contact lens. Yeah? I mean, what we have in the United States is traditionally a very fine gradation of the right wing so that more and more and more extreme and so like when you get the extreme like this group there are probably not many people who outright affiliate with them or endorse what they're doing but there are some that you know won't want to criticize them there's some that collaborate with things that they might be doing so what would you say is the strength of not only this group but taking it together, this group and people who are willing to look the other way, d- defend them, collaborate with like-minded things. You know, I'm trying to s- say, okay, you know, th- there's there's just these people as such, but then there's the the milieu in, in, in which they, they operate. What, what, what would you so- say is the size of that milieu? You know, if I was planning a coup, I would want to make sure that once I took over, I could be pretty sure there'd be enough popular support for me to stay in power. I mean, I'm seeing like some polling that says the AFD, the alternative for Deutschland party, the far right party, polls at like somewhere between 10 to 14% popularity that 4.3% of Germans attended anti-coronavirus restriction protests in recent years, but another 7 or 11% or something voiced support for those anti-coronavirus protections. So there's kind of like maybe this 10%-ish somewhere in that pocket of people who poll far right. That's not quite enough people to have mass support for your coup. But you know maybe there's enough. Maybe they thought, well, in addition to the far right, we might have another people who are far right adjacent enough that we could take over the military and there wouldn't be enough popular protest to stop us, you know? The the numbers I was able to find, uh, according to the Domestic Intelligence Service, according to a 2022 report by that uh, Domestic Intelligence Service, is that about, uh, that the the, the Reichsburger movement has about 21,000 members, and uh, they have close links with the AFD. There's an overlap of of extreme right-wing views with the Pegida movement and the Pegida movement, they are the ones that shout the replacement hypothesis. Uh, the immigrants, the refugees, the Muslims, they take over the, the Christian countries. So the Reichsburger have sympathizers there. And then there is the lateral thinkers, the querdenkers, that's mostly the anti-vaxxers. Recently, they have teamed up with the Pegida in a joint massive demonstration. 
and they share distrust in the government. They are the coronavirus deniers, anti-vaxxers. They also don't like the government. So there is an overlap of movements or uh, ideologies across movements. And therefore, I, I would expect there is quite a few sympathizers that associate with the uh, failed coup. But you're right. I hope that the support and the sympathizers, the, the movements, is not big enough to keep the, uh, the new government in power if the coup succeeds. And in fact, they knew this because they uh, had plans not only to talk to the Russians, but also to the Western allies to have a proper peace treaty. Going back to World War II, no pre-peace treaty was made. So they, they want a proper peace treaty now and get the blessings from the Western allies to keep them in power. Well, we are out of time for this segment, but thank you to Ralph Keller for coming on today to talk about this for our current events segment. Up next, we'll be talking about uh, capitalism and climate crisis. Okay, so today we have a guest who's not a guest, and he needs no introduction because he's Brendan Cooney. Um, I'll be interviewing Brendan about his new article, In With Sober Senses, the Marxist Humanist Initiative publication. And the title of the article is, Should I Turn Down the Thermostat or Overthrow the Capitalist Mode of Production? Subtitle, Further Thoughts on Marxist Humanist Initiative's Perspective on the Ecological Crisis. So this is Brendan uh, writing once again on the ecological crisis. He was the main author of MHI's statement uh, on the ecological crisis published just about a year ago. And so now uh, he's writing up further thoughts and he'll be discussing that with me today. The new article begins this way. Future generations in writing about this historical moment may endlessly debate how humanity managed to stare imminent ecological crisis in the face, yet do nothing to forestall it. The mystery behind our current inaction will seem even more puzzling given the widespread acceptance of climate science and the widespread concern about climate change. Explanations that appeal merely to bad actors or disinformation will likely not be entirely convincing to future historians, given that the failure of inaction is not limited to just some countries in certain years, but rather is a state of inaction that can be claimed by most all political parties of most all countries extending back in time for decades. Explanations that evoke the mass moral failing of an irresponsible cult of consumerism will also likely fall short, given the fact that there is no reliable way for consumers to make informed consumption choices that would noticeably reduce their carbon footprint. So this is the problematic that Brendan is facing. The most popular ways of explaining the crisis we face just don't hold water. So instead of spending your time telling us that they don't hold water, what you try to do is say, okay, here's what's really going on, folks. So what is really going on? Like we laid out in our perspectives, we really have to look at the capitalist mode of production, which is a system of competition for profit, uh, and the way that determines the range of actions available 
to all the parties involved, whether that's good politicians, bad politicians, consumers, states, uh, political parties. These are laws of competition that compel a logic of growth for the sake of growth. And it's, it's a type of growth that tends to accelerate the emission of greenhouse gases rather than to decelerate them. It's one that disincentivizes other types of clean energy production. And it's one in which the realm of personal consumption of consumer choice has no effect on whether or not production is like reoriented toward more green production or more carbon intensive production. So that's the basic argument I'm trying to put forward in the paper. Specifically, I want to also in the paper do a lot of deconstructing this idea that we often have in our society, whether it's conscious or some kind of unconscious idea, but it's just a basic framework by which a lot of us have been sort of inculcated to uh, think about the climate crisis. And that's the sense that all greenhouse gas emissions are somehow reducible to the personal choices of consumers, as if our own private uh, moral failings are the reason for the climate crisis. That's just such an insidious idea, and it it comes up in a lot of different ways in our society. And I'm trying to deconstruct that, not just in some kind of vague philosophical way, but to really get at the nuts and bolts of what types of activity produce greenhouse gas emissions, why those sectors tend to increase the amount of uh, emissions rather than decrease them, and why that logic has really nothing to do with private choices that that consumers make. Okay, so we'll get further into that, into some of the nuts and bolts. But these are further thoughts, you know, and you were the principal author of our perspective on the ecological crisis. And some of what you've just said was said in the the earlier statement. So I'm going to ask you the kind of question I asked uh, Michael Albert. What are you saying that's that's different this time? What's new? I wanted to look more at this issue of victim blaming, the way that we often blame like individuals and their consumption choices for climate change, and to use the same framework that we used in the perspectives of talking about um, competition, talking about production for production's sake, uh, increase of constant capital, all those things, but use them to look at this issue of like personal responsibility for climate change. And also to repeat some of the previous themes because, you know, when you write things, you go to, you go to look at something and write it a second time, sometimes it comes out more clearly. A lot of the perspectives were devoted to like critiquing um, degrowth theory. And in the process of doing that, I think I worked out some things that I could say more clearly in like a second paper. But this paper doesn't even go into degrowth theory, but I need I kind of need to go through that process of like critique to clarify some ideas. Yeah, so you've been talking about the, the ideology of attributing the ecological crisis to consumer choices. And you say that it's it's a matter of blaming the victim. Why is why is this an important issue? I think it's a way of thinking that's permeated a lot of different sides of the environmental crisis. I think about even how sometimes people are gravitate to these like radical acts of non-consumption. I'm thinking of like Greta Thunberg's climate, the teenage climate activist from Sweden, her famous boat trip she took across the Atlantic a few years ago, which was supposed to symbolize, I guess, like some radical act of like foregoing airplane travel. 
for the sake of reducing the emissions of, of travel. But it's like an action that makes like very little sense when you look at it, not just because personal, I mean, I have nothing against people making like personal symbolic actions to make a political point. I think that's fine. But the point that she's making, and I think Greta Thunberg is great in a lot of ways. She says a lot of things that are profound and, and inspiring, but that sort of flying shame a, a thing doesn't even really make a lot of sense. I mean, air air travel is a tiny fraction of of the global carbon footprint. But even beyond that, like refraining from various acts of personal consumption of it focuses the camera in the wrong direction. As if as if the problem with greenhouse gas emissions is that people consume irresponsibly, and I don't think that is even the problem in the first place. The you you see this uh, this way of thinking a lot in a lot of places, though. I think that in the realm of psychology and therapy, they're having to develop whole new modalities of personal therapy to deal with people's guilt around climate change. I think if you really believe that everything that's happening with climate change is ultimately reducible to like the moral failings of consumers, it would make sense to be like, feel extremely guilty for that. I mean, it's like almost like a self-annihilating way of thinking where your existence on the planet is dooming future generations to all sorts of crises. Like how could you not feel horrible if that's what you actually believe? And I think a lot of people have that sense of shame and, and dread. And that seems to then have something to do with the title of the paper. Should I turn down the thermostat or overthrow the capitalist mode of production? I think a subtext here is if you're very concerned about the moral failings of individuals, well, what's really behind that is you really think that it's the actions of individuals that need to change rather than the, the system of production, the mode of force, more and more and more expansion of value without end and, and so forth. Yeah, and I'm sure most people listening to this are familiar with this way of thinking because I think a lot of people think this way and they talk about it all the time now. I hear it all the time. People apologize for having to drive somewhere when they could have taken the bus. They apologize for having to take a plane somewhere. They like make excuses you know, in a guilty way for their choices about travel or whatever it is, or they engage in some kind of virtuous signaling around uh, choices they make about putting solar panels on their house or ter- keeping their thermostat low, whatever it is. It's it's everywhere in the way people think about the climate problem. Yeah. One of the, the ways that it manifests is in the very term carbon footprint. And this is uh, among the emissions of the petroleum industry, uh, this term, may, may, you, you, you mentioned that in the paper. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And I've heard this in different places, but I hadn't read into the history of the term that closely. Um, but apparently the term carbon footprint was created and marketed by the petroleum industry, maybe specifically by British Petroleum, as a way of trying to take attention away from the petroleum industry for all the pollution that they create. They thought by making people think of carbon emissions as something that they were personally responsible for, that they could take the heat off themselves. And it's pretty you know, explicit and deliberate that that was what they were trying to do. It's probably surprising because the term is so well accepted now, but you know, the petroleum industry, like, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that surprising given what we know about the petroleum industry's funding of anti 
climate science research and the perpetuation of all sorts of post-truths around climate issues. But though people on the left know to like not trust the anti-science coming out of the petroleum industry around climate change, people have pretty much uncritically adopted the notion of carbon footprint, which basically is a way of reducing all industrial pollution to the moral failings of individuals. We talk about the carbon footprint of households, about the carbon footprint of countries. Never do we talk about the carbon footprint of capitalism as an economic system that has an increasing carbon footprint by necessity. Right. And as I understand it, by the way, British Petroleum, BP, these are the people, you know, they've got gas stations all around, everywhere, green and gold, BP gas stations, that's British Petroleum. So it's a, it's a very, very big global company. As I understand it, what they did is they took, you know, this idea of carbon footprint, popularized it, and added this word in front of it, personal, as a way of saying, oh, well, what is your carbon footprint? What do you do? You know, how are you responsible? And the subtext is you are responsible rather than we are responsible. This, this was very intentional on their part. So so I guess we should not use the term carbon footprint. We should use the term like carbon business plan, carbon business model, something like that. Yeah. And even like radical groups like Extinction Rebellion, I, I quote them in the paper, they they say on their website that, quote, ultimately the climate and ecological crisis is a crisis of human overconsumption. And the same vibe we hear this like notion of the Anthropocene, which tries to characterize this uh, the effect of humans on the environment as um, currently in our current era as like a new era in geological history, driven by not capitalist production, but by just the fact that human beings are on the planet, that we're just so destructive by nature that we're like altering everything about the planet on like a cellular level. But it's really not, I mean, human beings have been around for a long time. If you look at the, you know, history of human beings, we've been around for tens of thousands of years. It's only been in the past hundred years that we started destroying the planet. So it's, it really makes no sense to like characterize the age as an Anthropocene. Should be like a capital Pacine or whatever, I don't know what the word would be, but you know, you get the idea. But this idea of like blaming human behavior, private consumption, human overconsumption, moral failings of consumers, it's all like part of the same way of thinking, which blames individuals and blames human beings for like their base nature, rather than thinking about what sort of social organization and society creates the situation in which we're collectively destroying the planet. We all know what's happening. None of us want it to happen but it's happening anyway. Right. Okay. But I'll tell you, when you quote Extinction Rebellion and they say, ultimately, this is all a problem of human overconsumption, what this brought to my mind was Paul Mahler Sweezy, you know, Paul Sweezy, the, the founder of the Monthly Review School, writing, ultimately, all production is production for human consumption, and anything that tries to contradict that is just nonsense whatever he whatever he said but the, he did say ultimately all production is production for human consumption and whether knowingly or unknowingly i think that that is the the claim that is underlying this idea that look when you come down to it since all production is production for human consumption it's in the end 
people over-consuming, and therefore that's why we've got all these ecological problems. It, it seems to me that that's what that ultimately is, is trying to tell us. So it's rooted in this idea that all production is ultimately production for human consumption. So how do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, well, it was in thinking about this parallel between the sort of under-consumptionism of the monthly review school when they say that all production is for personal consumption and the framework we often hear around climate change where all greenhouse gas emissions are reducible or seemingly to personal consumption. It was in thinking about the parallel between those two that I started to want to write them on this topic and think back to the sort of stuff that MHI and you have written on the topic in the past. MHI, Marxist humanism, the work you've done, Andrew, in critiquing uh, underconsumptionism, the work Dunyavskaya did in talking about the mode of production in the Soviet U Union. We already have like an understanding of the relationship of personal consumption to the capitalist mode of production that can help us look at this question and make sense of it. Because what we know from all those various endeavors I just mentioned is that, you know, that capitalist societies are not driven by personal consumption choices, that there are laws of competition that compel the growth of production, and those laws are not re reducible to the private consumption choices of individuals. So we can you know, go into that in, in some detail later. In fact, not all production is production for personal consumption, um, and we can, we can go into that later as well. I, I think we should, or maybe we can go into that now because, I mean, the way a lot of people think is there's upstream and downstream and everything ultimately uh, results in a product that a person consumes. So you you, you got uh, the farm implement industries and they produce hoes and they produce uh, tractors and so forth. And you got the steel for that. So the steel starts with iron, which starts with ore. So you got the ore, you got the iron, you got the steel, you got the farm implements, you got the agricultural sector. But in the end, they produce food. And who consumes the food? Well, it might be restaurants, but who consumes what the restaurants produce? Ah, it's people. Okay. So do, isn't it ultimately all a problem of human consumption? Well, I'd like to talk about that. But first, I'd like to look at this chart that's in the paper and just disambiguate like some of the greenhouse gas emissions and where they come from in the global economy first, because I think just that by itself is a good starting point. Okay, so so let me just inter interrupt. It's in the, the paper. It's a pie chart taken from our World in Data, a well-known website, and it's entitled uh, Global Greenhouse Gas Emissions by Sector. So the pie chart breaks down global greenhouse gas emissions, in other words, the carbon whatever, in terms of which sector is emitting these gases. Yeah, I, I think this is really useful to look at because, you know, I think a lot of people when you ask them, like, where is all this pollution coming from? Where are the greenhouse gas emissions coming from? They think like cars, because that's something we do every day. A lot of us, right? We get in a car, we burn gas. We know that what we're doing is making the planet hotter every time we get in our car. We see like thousands of cars every day on the road with our own eyes burning gas. People talk about, you know, what do we need to do? Oh, we need electric cars, We need blah, 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 right? Well, if you look at this pie chart, put together by uh, Our World and Data. The authors are Hannah Ritchie and Max Roser. Road transportation, 
globally is responsible for just around 11% of global greenhouse gas emissions. About um, 40% of that, 11%, is commercial transportation. So the transportation of private individuals, personal car use, is about 7.5% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So that's not an insignificant chunk, but that's actually a pretty small amount of the global greenhouse gas emissions, which I think a lot of people don't even realize. I mean, I've had many conversations with people since I you know, saw this chart and you know, talked to them about it. People spend all this time worrying, oh, do I, should I buy an electric car? They're really expensive, blah, blah, blah. And I say, well, look, that's great if you want to do that. But did you know that globally, like this is a tiny fraction of the pollution that, that's created in, in the global economy. Another thing people stress out a lot about is like their home heating costs, their home electrical costs, you know, turning lights off in the room when they're not there, blah, blah, blah. Residential buildings, energy use, that's heating and all electrical use, that's just over 10% of the global carbon footprint. If you put that, that together with air travel and landfills, which also, you know, the, the, all the trash we produce creates a little bit of carbon waste. Um, all that is like personal actions that we take on a day-to-day basis that create greenhouse gas emissions. That's about like 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Everything else is emissions that are created by industry. Right. And like you say, a lot of the, the transportation is, uh, you know, trucking companies, commercial transportation. A lot of the buildings are commercial buildings or, you know, airports uh, and, and you know, stadiums and, and uh, office buildings and, and, and so forth. Yeah. yeah. I, don't think, I think people don't necessarily realize that most of the greenhouse gas emissions, the vast majority on the planet, are coming from industrial practices. It could be agriculture. It could be the production of uh, materials. It could be the production of consumer goods. It can be you know production of things like chemicals and cement. It can be uh, livestock and manure, making of steel and iron, petrochemicals. All these different industrial pra- processes that are part of the global economy, that's most of what is creating the greenhouse gas emissions. Your own private actions that you take on a day-to-day basis, driving your car, heating your home, that's part of it, but it's a small part of it. Most of it, it's coming from industry. So then the question is, why does industry create so much pollution? And is it just because people keep buying things on Amazon? Or is there some other logic at play that is creating a system in which this industrial activity is destroying the planet? Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angela Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas 
that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world we intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So up to this point, your argument is, to use the, the carbon footprint metaphor, BP has a Bigfoot carbon footprint, and you have a little tiny, little toe print, right? So that's that's where we are at this point. And then you're you're about to say something which I think is harder to, to, to understand. Yeah, what is that? Well, there are really two things. Maybe there are three things. One is just that the process of capitalist competition itself is one that rewards... Um, behavior that is more carbon intensive. That's because capitalist competition compels and rewards firms to to develop their means of production, to invest more in machinery and raw materials. And those are processes which are carbon intensive. And they're increasingly carbon intensive as there's more and more investment in material production and, and developing the means of production. You know, I'm building new factories, building new machines, needing new raw materials. Those are all things that are have uh, a rising carbon footprint as the constant capital required for for production increases, to use Marx's term. Okay, so you, you say that basically they mechanize, they have more capital intensive, so to speak, not labor intensive technology. They adopt labor saving technical changes, right? Uh, and you said that there's a compulsion there and there's a reward there. What, what's the compulsion? What's what's the reward? Well, the reward is that this is how you compete. This is how you uh, lower your unit cost per commodity and dominate more of the market. And the compulsion is that if you don't compete against your competitors who are doing such, then you go out of business because you can't make things as efficiently. 
So if your factory in the U.S. is based on manual labor and you're competing against a Chinese firm that is fully automated, then you can't produce as cheaply and you can't stay in business. But these are processes that are inherently more carbon intensive because they're more industrial. They require more energy. They require more production of materials. Um, you know, I, I before I started researching this kind of thing, I didn't realize that like just like the production, pro like making cement is highly carbon intensive. You know, building a new factory and it's outside of the energy consumption, just like making cement is really uh, carbon intensive. Building a new factory, all those kind of things are bad for the planet. And that's what capitalists are compelled to do by competition. They're not compelled to do that because consumers are asking for it. Consumers have no idea where their products come from and can't make any educated choices about these things. It's just the process of competition, which is making it happen. Right. I guess one could say, well, you know, people are to blame because they want to get things as cheaply as possible. And more advanced technologies allow producers to produce at lower cost. And because they produce at lower cost, they can price their stuff at lower prices. And you could say that that's all due to consumers wanting things as cheaply as possible. And like, who doesn't? You know, but even in that case, you look at the incomes of the vast majority of the population, people are just getting by. So it's not like, oh, we're just greedy and we want to get things as cheaply as possible. People have to get things as cheaply as possible because the capitalism doesn't provide massive incomes for the, the working population. And now, you know, a lot of people have this idea that they should be making more ecologically responsible choices as consumers. And so, of course, like so much of production now is accompanied by some level of green greenwashing. It could be that they promise some sort of carbon offset when you buy their product, or they just have the word green somewhere in the packaging, or there's a picture of a tree, or there's a, you know, a bunch of ridiculous packaging in your package. And then there's some note that says like, this is amazing packaging. Please save it. Don't throw it away. You know, I got something... <laughs> My kids got something today and there was this bag and this plastic bag that said, this is a cool bag. Don't throw it away. And you, <laughs> I guess you're supposed to be like really amazed at how like the ecological wokeness of this company that can tell me not to throw away this plastic, this cool plastic bag. Oh, I got, I got stories about this. I won't bore you with it, but it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing. I mean, you go into the, the, the grocery store, they sell you bags you don't even ask for. They charge you 33 cents a bag, and then they deliver the food. They can deliver the food in a box without the bags. They're selling you these bags. The bags say, oh, this is a reusable, recyclable bag. It can be used 125 times. But every time you go into the store, they hawk these, these bags at you. So... <laughs> Yeah, and apparently it's kind of ambiguous to what extent reusable shopping bags are better for the environment than single-use plastic bags. They're made of heavier material, and so they have a higher carbon footprint to be produced. So you actually have to use them a lot of times, by some estimates, a few hundred times or a few thousand times before they outweigh the carbon footprint of just using single-use plastic bags. So it's all very difficult for the individual consumer to like take all these things into consideration and make actual reasoned, responsible, ethical, ecological purchasing decisions about the consumption of products whose 
come from these very complex supply chains and have very complex, difficult to calculate carbon footprints. We just aren't, aren't equipped to make those kind of decisions as individuals. Even this question of like, should I buy an electric car for like the tiny amount of people who can afford an electric car? I, I've read research that was done that argued that actually keeping your old car for as long as possible is better for the environment than buying a new electric car. Because of course, producing a new car is a carbon intensive industrial process. And actually running your old car into the ground uh, in the one study I read is better for the environment than buying a new electric car. Yeah, I mean, given given that states in the U.S. also have emission standards, and so, I mean, you can't do that if uh, the car doesn't pass some kind of emission standard. You know, and then there's all the, the recycling scam. What, 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 do you know any figures about what the net gain from recycling is? Because there, there's a lot of energy and uh, stuff expended in, in the recycling processes. Yeah, I don't have exact figures to share on the carbon footprint of recycling, but there are a lot of m- myths and propaganda around recycling. Uh, you know, for instance, plastic recycling is pretty much just a propaganda concept created by the petroleum industry to make people feel uh, less guilty about consuming plastics. I mean, uh, most, the vast majority of plastics that you put in a recycling bin are just incinerated or buried in landfills. They don't get recycled because they can't really be recycled. I think only 10% of consumer plastics get recycled. Metal is a much better material that can be recycled and actually does lower the carbon footprint, I believe, of some metals to, to engage in metal recycling. But plastic is is not like that. It breaks down chemically very quickly. It can only really be recycled once, and there are too many different types of plastic to make it uh, feasible to recycle plastics. I'm sure future sociologists, if there are any, will have a field day studying like the cult of recycling in our society. That's a deep one, you know. We all do it. I recycle religiously, and I know it all goes into an incinerator in Philadelphia. You know, <laughs> I don't know. I can't stop doing it because I think I'm supposed to. Yeah, I mean, I remember when all of this started. I'm old enough to remember when this, when this started, and they weren't yet blaming people. At least, at least that wasn't on my screen. I wasn't conscious of blaming people. But, I mean, already, and we're talking about 1972, 1973, already it was, here's what you can do, here's what we can do to save our planet, and it was like recycling and all of this kind of thing. So that, that's been going on 50 years at least. So, yeah, so you, you were basically saying that there's like incentives, rewards, and compulsion for capitalists to screw up the environment. Uh, and one thing you, you, you pointed to was reducing costs through technological advancement, which is bad for the environment. Is there anything else that's at issue there? Well, it is an advantage in competition to economies of scale. The larger the factory, the more efficiently it uses its resources. So it can produce more for less input cost and outcompete its rivals. So there's a certain inherent economic advantage to being a larger firm, larger factories, larger companies, companies that are multinational corporations with lots of different aspects to what they do and a big global production chain and they have control for all these parts of the chain that's like inherently successful companies are move in those directions uh, in the capitalist society because that's what is advantageous uh, in the process of competition and by nature those larger 
production facilities uh, are more carbon intensive than smaller firms, almost by definition. Their buildings are bigger. They take more carbon to produce the buildings. The machinery uses more energy. They need more and more raw material inputs, and that is more carbon intensive. So the whole process just becomes more carbon intensive the longer the capitalist economic activity goes on. Right. So the reward, again, is they can, by being big, they can reduce their costs, outcompete their rivals, get additional profit by selling cheaper, by lowering their costs, and then they can they, they can sell cheaper. And the compulsion is... If they don't do it, someone else will. The, the upshot of this is it's not just lack of concern for people, although that's there, and it's not irrational within the capitalist system, given the way it operates, this behavior is, is very rational. You're, you're trying to be as efficient as possible. You're putting in the, the latest technology. You're being big so you can produce cheaply instead of wasting a lot. So there's a certain rationality to all, the whole thing. And the problem is it's capitalist rationality. Yeah, it's just insanely destructive. You were setting up this question earlier, Andrew, and then I I directed us somewhere else, but... Oh, yes, the, 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 the upstream and the downstream. And ultimately, it starts off with the mining of ore, and then you get the steel, you get the farm implements, you get the food. And no, the people don't eat the food. The restaurants buy the food, but then they turn it into meals, and hot people eat the food. It all comes down to people and their consumption, right? I mean, this is all something I learned from you a long time ago in studying Volume 2 of Capital. It was deep because... I had studied volume two of Capital. It was actually the first part of Capital I read. Most people start with volume one. I'd read all these other post-Marxists talking about the reproduction schemes and Capital. So I was like, I'm going to read some Marx. And I went and just read the reproduction schemes at the end of volume two. That was like how I started reading Capital. But I did not get what was actually going on because I was reading it through the, the lens of what like people like David Harvey were trying to say with the reproduction schemes, which has nothing to do with what Marx was actually trying to do. And you set me straight on that a long time ago and explained that what Marx was trying to do in the end of volume two is to address this this very question is, is can we conceive of capitalist production as all being something that resolves in the end to consumption, that comes to consumption of humans? Is this what all this production is for? And the answer is no, that there is a portion of capitalist production, which is just production for production's sake. Marx divides the economy into two different departments, he calls them. Department one, which produces means of production, producing machines and factories and raw material, partially finished goods and etc. And then there's department two, which is producing consumer goods, things that people consume, food, clothes, toys, whatever. And it's not true that everything that all the value produced in department one then moves into department two and then is sold to consumers. There's actually a portion of the value in department one that is just remains in department one the entire time. And we, one of the ways we know this is that department one can grow faster than department two. And this is actually something that we can observe empirically. And I quote in my paper, I cite a paper of yours, Marx's reproduction schemes as an unbalanced growth model. We've discussed it on the podcast. Off the top of my head, I can't tell you the name of the episode, but we discussed it. And you point out, Andrew, and you can probably say more than I can here, but that this is actually a theme we see in 
you, you talk about not only Lenin talking about it, but that in the economic development literature, people talk about this phenomena that in developing countries that department one grows faster than de- department two, that actually there's a decrease consumption relative to the increase in productive activity. This was something that Ryadunyevskaya pointed to as evidence that the Soviet Union was a capitalist society. It's something that we can observe in China uh, today. And it's like an inherent part of capitalism, this trade-off between consumption and industrial expansion. And it's also what it means in terms of the question of greenhouse gas emissions is that there's actually a part of capitalist productive activity, which is not just burning fossil fuels in order to sell people stuff. It's just burning fossil fuels in order to create more means of production. It's like machines making machines for the point of making machines and burning fossil fuels in the process. And as I mentioned in the paper, I was able to find some research into this very issue. You know, they're not using Marxist terms, but there's an environmental economist named uh, Edgar Hertwich, which um, has a paper called Increased Carbon Footprint of Material Production Driven by the Rise in Investments. It's a super catchy title, but I linked to it in the paper. And he talks about this very thing. He says that actually the carbon footprint of investments, this like investment in capital, is growing faster in the global economy than the carbon footprint of investment in consumer goods. So it's like it's a real process, it's not just a theoretical way of framing things in order to like blame capitalists instead of blame consumers. It's like a real phenomenon in our society that the production of means of production for the sake of means of production, it, it has a, a carbon footprint that's growing faster than the carbon footprint of the production of consumer goods. Right. And if I remember a good deal of the disproportionate growth of greenhouse gases from production for industry rather than for personal consumption, a lot of that was related to China. China, yeah. Development of the Chinese economy, the industrialization of China. Can you give us a a sense of the, the time frame here and the magnitude of the disproportion? So this is what Hertwich says in his paper, that between 1995 and 2015, the carbon footprint of consumption rose by 64%. So that's the carbon footprint of goods that are made for human beings to consume, 64%. But the carbon footprint of investment rose by 170%, more than two and a half times as rapidly. In other words, the greenhouse gases created by capital formation are increasing much more rapidly than the greenhouse gases created by consumption and the production of consumption goods. Yeah, that's that's a huge, huge difference in the rate of increase. And it's for the space of a whole generation. So it's not just a one-off thing. It's a, a trend, yeah. And the carbon footprint of consumption, why does it rise? I, I haven't seen the breakdown, but I would assume there's more people on the planet that they're more hooked into a global economy, which is carbon dependent, right? Increasingly hooked into, you know, um, means of consumption that are carbon reliant. The carbon footprint of investment doesn't have to say, you know, it's r- rising because that's just what capitalism does is it it has explosive economic growth growth and it invests in more and more machinery for their own sake and this is what happens as you have that section of the economy sector of the economy growing two and a half times as rapidly as consumption yeah i mean it would be interesting i mean because you you mentioned two things more people 
and being more tied into polluting environmentally destructive processes, it'd be interesting to put it on a per-person basis because over a 20-year period, I don't know what the global growth in population was, but it's not insubstantial. So it's quite conceivable that on a per-person basis, what would you say, 64% for consumption, maybe that was like 20, 20, 30% growth per person. But then you're talking about still something like 140% or so for industrial production, not for consumption. That would show the disparity even even more starkly. Yeah, yeah I think a, lot, a bunch of the things that I've tried to point to in this paper are, could be developed a lot more, especially by someone who has a better grasp of environmental economics than I do in terms of crunching numbers, because I can't do it myself. I got to find other people's papers and try to make sense of them. I'm just surprised that we're not seeing more of this kind of conversation in the environmental literature. I'm not, I, I would expect to see more discussion of this kind of phenomenon because it seems really the meat of the whole problem. Yeah. I mean, the thing is to be able to do something like what Hurtwich did, you not only need to know that field, you need to understand matrix algebra, you need to understand input-output analysis. So, I mean, it actually doesn't surprise me all, all that much. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't see any of this in the popular literature. So, I I mean, we've discussed one of the themes of, of your new paper, which is this blaming of consumers for the ecological crisis it doesn't wash. Here's what's really going on. It all has to do with capitalist production, the laws of capitalist production being enforced by, by competition. But there's uh, another theme, as we said in the beginning, which is explaining the ecological crisis or trying to explain it by talking about bad actors, disinformation, that doesn't cut it either. So what is it that you, you go on to say about that issue? There's a certain type of thinking in the environmental movement and other movements as well that if we just put the right people in charge um, with the right ideas, then we could get the right things done. In the environmental movement, we often get the idea that all these failings of our leaders and our countries and parties are just because the wrong people are in power or they're corrupted or there's too much propaganda from the fossil fuel industry. Uh, I don't think those are very compelling ways of explaining such a massive failure. If the system is uh, structured to work a certain way, it's going to keep working that way regardless of who's in charge. I mean, that's like the short version of the thing. You know, there's this kind of underlying assumption behind a lot of environmental politics that we already have the right ideas and technology that we need to solve the crisis. And if we just had the right people in place, then we could execute those ideas and be in our way to, uh, or hopefully for, for stalling climate catastrophe. But I, as I point in the paper, it's just not the case that we even have green technologies available to replace fossil fuels for certain things. And the reasons we don't have those available are because uh, there's no incentive within the capitalist mode of production to even develop technologies to place fossil fuels. Uh, I give the example of industrial heating, which is maybe the best example. By some estimates, industrial heating contributes like maybe up to 10% of the global greenhouse gas emissions every year. Um, industrial heating is like the high intensity heat that's needed to create certain materials like steel. Um, you can't do that with current green technologies at all. You need to be burning like coal, oil on site to create really high heat so that you can 
you know, melt things and make steel and whatever. We don't have a technology to replace uh, fossil fuels for that yet. And there are some reasons we don't have that. Um, I, I cite a piece by David Roberts, a, ju- a journalist from a couple of years ago in Vox, where he writes about this problem. And he, he gives several reasons why we don't have a good replacement. And I think they're really interesting. You know, he's, he's points out that, look, industrial materials are globally traded commodities, and they compete on razor-thin profit margins, right, globally. So if your national policy was to put a carbon tax on steel production in your country, that production is just going to move overseas. And the nature of capitalist competition between nation states is that people want to keep material production in their own borders for their own national security interests. They don't want heavy industries moving to other countries. So there's a basic like geopolitical competition, capitalist competition overlapping each other here to make it really unlikely that there would even be states putting pressure on industries to change their carbon em- emissions from material productions like that. Furthermore, like industrial heating technology is built into the design of these fixed capital investments. These factories that make things like steel, they're built to last decades and decades. So to close them and open up different factories with different types of production processes would be a real financial hit to those industries. So you can see by this one example how within the capitalist mode of production, there are not any incentives to even begin to develop technology in the way it needs to be developed to phase out fossil fuels. And again, this is a great counter to the argument that we hear sometimes that when people claim they already have the ideas and the technology we need to replace fossil fuels, it just isn't true. And it's not true because of capitalism. You know, one of the other things that I, I, I point out we talked about earlier is that there's this trade-off between the development of department one, the means of production, and the the, the production of consumer goods. And when capitalist societies de- invest more in the development of means of production, there's a relative hit that needs to be taken by production of consumption goods. The sort of promises of green capitalism, of the Green New Deal, tend to paint uh, everything in these rosy pictures where there are no economic trade-offs anymore. Like there's no trade-off between massive investments and changing the productive base of society to green production and uh, wages, right? Like uh, according to the Green New Deal proponents, like everything's going to, you know, wages are going to grow, jobs are going to be better, and we're going to have all these investments in green technologies and carbon emissions are there's there's no trade-offs economically and that's just not the way capitalism works there's always trade-offs between things so i think these this sort of false optimism that we have behind some of the green new deal uh, politics as much as i agree with the sentiment that we need radical system-wide change seems like unrealistic and it's unrealistic because it doesn't actually look at the nuts and bolts of capitalism and why capitalism is so bad for the environment Right. I mean, I, th- I think those people's pronouncements need to be given some scrutiny, whether the numbers add up. And what we saw with uh, other things coming from the Bernie Sanders campaign were not uh, reassuring in terms of accounting for the trade-offs and so forth, as you were saying. Uh, a lot of creative accounting there. I mean, you know, of course, you got new green industries, you create jobs and, and, and all of this, but in the end, you need to see the entire thing and not anecdotes. I, I, I don't know if anybody has done a real accounting, but I would like to see an, an accounting of like what would be the, the net impact on global greenhouse emissions, the net impact. If there's going to be a reduction 
how is that production, that reduction going to come about? What is going to take a hit as a result? Is there going to be a drop in production? Well, there's going to be new jobs, new sectors. Yeah, okay, but what's the total throughout the economy? What's the total number of jobs? In, unless you see the, the total accounting, it, it becomes impossible to, to evaluate this stuff. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies.